are tuned in to the Way of Healing podcast, where we inspire humans to connect more deeply to their experience of life. My name is OJ. My name is Casey. We are connecting with practitioners to talk about the potential of the innate healing powers within. Welcome back to the Way of Healing. I'm Casey. I'm OJ. What's up? What's up? Today, we have a dear friend of mine, a very special person in my life, uh, Rebecca Taibbi of Satya Family Coaching. Hello. That's Rebecca. What's up? <laughs> yeah. They made weird noises when they saw each other. So. Did that, we? I didn't even notice. It's uh, that kind of friendship. Just, yeah. <laughs> it's weird. It's if cool. you're lucky, we'll, we'll give you some weird noises. Maybe. I don't know. Um. Yeah, so we're we're sitting here and uh, we're eating some grapes and drink, drinking some Topo Chico. We got a new spot. It's the first time in a while that we recorded in somewhere other than Casey's apartment. Uh-huh. Cool. We've been doing them at my kitchen table. Nice. But now we're at Rebecca's coffee table in her living room. Yes. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming over. I really appreciate it. It's beautiful. Yeah, thank mm-hmm. you. Rebecca, tell us a little bit about what what you are, what you do, what Satya Family Coaching is. Sure. Or so, what? Well, you could tell how we met. Can you weave that in somehow? Yeah. I mean, I'll just start there. Okay. Because that's interesting to me. Um, so I was living in Santa Monica. This is like how many years ago? Several. Two or three years ago? More than three okay. because of the things in my life that were going on. Okay. It was uh, mm. February of 2016. Okay. Good memory. And I was new to the area and just was kind of putting like a prayer out into the universe. Like I really want a friend, like a good friend and decided to go to Bhakti Yoga Shala to practice that day. It was Sunday and that's where Govindas and Radha um, do their fun kirtan vinyasa stuff. And so I set up my mat and I had kind of even forgotten about that like inquiry (laughs) of of the universe and sat at my yoga mat and there was like one empty space and class was about to start. And then this cute girl with a sweet little pixie cut came and (laughs) just, you know, sat down next to me. Um, and then we just like, and I think we were just feeling each other's practice and like the energy. They kind of make you do that, right? Govindas is like, okay, now I want everyone to look at each other and high five or yeah. say hi to your neighbor, introduce yourself. So we had that. Yeah. And I was just having fun with you <laughs> and felt connected to you. And then we hugged at the end, right? And just kind of thanked each other because there was like a sharing that was happening between the two of us. And did you ask, who asked who wanted to hang out after class? Um, I, you know, I'm not sure that I'm prepared for that question. Uh, we hung out after class. Yeah. All day. Yeah. We walked on the beach. Mm-hmm. We told, we told each other, we like dove right into yeah. life story stuff. Yeah. We were fast friends. Yeah. Yeah. So that was neat. That was very cool. And yeah. then we discovered that we had like interesting intersections of our lives. Both yeah. of us had gone to Columbia university, mm-hmm. albeit at different times. Um, I just got chills. That's been happening a lot lately. Yeah. Yeah, we're chilling. (laughs) (laughs) OJ's chilling. So that was really fun and connective. And um, I made a friend that day. So that was, thank you for being an answer to prayers. (laughs) 
Thanks. <laughs> so I'll tell you a little bit about Satya Family Coaching. I started that service about six years ago, and I wanted to take a mindful approach to family life in a very niche part of family life. So I started a company that serves families who are transitioning their kids home from wilderness therapy or residential treatment. And I work with adolescents and young adults. I bridge that transition home for the first three months and typically walk families through like that initial kind of just excitement of being home and that glow of recovery to like the realities of being back at home and how difficult it is and the realities of living home with your parents again or living with your kid again. It's tough. And so we're typically like tempted to fall back into old patterns of survival and being with each other. And that's where I wanted to bring myself into the picture and teach families more skillful ways of relating to each other so that they started to maintain rather than slip back into those old patterns that kind of reinforce the behaviors and mindset that led to treatment and out-of-home placement in the first place. So that's the main focus of Satya. I'm branching into private practice here in West LA. So I work with everything. My tendency is to, I'm, I'm more drawn to clients who are healing from complex and like big T traumas. So complex traumas are more like the stuff we've inherited through intergenerational trauma, abandonment issues, attachment issues, those kind of pieces. And then the big T traumas are like life events. So I've made that my focus. I work a lot with young women and women and families. And then I'm also working in teen mental health, doing some contract work with Visions. Um, they're an adolescent treatment center here in LA. And I have been asked to lead their trauma programming. So I'm really excited about that. That's up and coming and feel like very honored. So that's kind of my, I don't know, I guess me telling you why I'm probably sitting here <laughs> with Casey and OJ. So <laughs> Groovy. Now, I know that you are also like a 500-hour yoga teacher. And so I'm curious, what are some of the tools that you use with your clients? I mean, I imagine that there's a whole range of things. Sure. But what are some of them? Yeah. So just a little bit of background on that. I am a 500-hour yoga teacher. And um co-lead a yoga for trauma recovery. I started teaching yoga for trauma recovery with my partner, Joanne Varney, who's in the Bay Area. We started going on six years ago when I was going through my own trauma recovery and Joanne was going through hers as well. We met in Malawi. We had known each other, but we were attending a yoga retreat together in Malawi. Wait, wait, wait. In Africa. In Africa. That that you just showed me up. You and I met in Santa Monica. You met Joanne in Malawi? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to just We sit had back. met, but we bonded in Malawi. Like we had been like, "Hello, like I see you, I know who you are," but then we really connected in Malawi. Was it a yoga class? It was a yoga retreat. It was a meditation service yoga retreat. And I wanted to travel. My teacher who was leading that retreat, I called her when I was going through a divorce at the time and was really like just seeking any way to heal. I was like in a place that I had never been before in my life. Like I had always kind of been like, I kind of had it together or I thought I really had it together. And then when you go through something like 
as serious as divorce. And that's one of those complex traumas. I was in this place where I was like desperate enough to do anything and try anything. And so I called my teacher and she asked me to go on this adventure. And that's where Joanne and I connected because we were witnessing so much trauma as part of the experience there. And it was connecting us to our own (laughs) traumas. And we decided to create this curriculum where we're training teachers, therapists, and just people who are in their own healing process, like how to organically heal using the body and using mindfulness modalities to really recover. So I'm doing like a very long-winded answer to this question. It's good. I have like more questions, but I'm just going to hold off. Okay, cool. Yeah, take your time. You have plenty of time. Okay. So that's part one of the where recovery led me to incorporate some of these pieces in my practice. In addition to yoga practice, I really discovered, um, well, there was something that just some kind of cosmic pull that I had towards silent retreat. And so after that trip to Malawi, I just was kind of thirsty for more retreat and then started looking like actually like manifesting or asking the universe again, like I, I want to do silent retreat. I don't know anything about this world other than I've heard of silent retreat. And the week that I returned home from Malawi, I got an email from a friend saying, I just returned from silent retreat and I thought about you the whole time. I think you should try this. And so she turned me on to Vipassana meditation. And it was remarkable, like how profound that experience was and how I had nowhere to run when I was in silence for days on end. How long was the retreat? It was 10 days. And so that, that initial retreat allowed me to really start to face things that I had never faced before and to really come to terms with the fact that I'm human And that as much as I had prided myself on like having it all together and looking a certain way, like I am messy and I am like wounded and I come with all of these pieces too. And I, I am not above anything like I am human. So that kind of awareness started like exciting me and helping me feel more connected. So I'll just kind of move into, um, how I incorporate some of these pieces into my practice before you go on, yeah. could you, because um, a lot of people listening don't know about Vipassana retreats. Sure. Could you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? I will. So let me say this. I, my first Vipassana retreat was, I was super ready for it. I was nine months into trauma recovery of my own and had been doing like, I was like, in this radiant place with recovery, I was like, I had leaned into it. I was leaning into the pain and I was like honoring the beauty and the intelligence of all of my feelings and just really taking this mindful, spiritual approach to it. And I had been priming myself for nine months. So by the time I did my first Goenka style Vipassana in Joshua Tree at 29 Palms, it was difficult, but it was like also very natural. So a Reader's Digest version of Vipassana is, um, especially in that tradition, is that it's 10 and a half hours of silent seated meditation a day, all done in silence. You start at, I believe, like 4, 4.30 in the morning. And then I think bedtime is like, oh, you're just exhausted by seven or eight at night because of all of the sitting. And you're really not supposed to stretch or incorporate any yoga. You're really supposed to be with everything that comes up in the body. So when you're sitting that long, it hurts. And part of that 
approach is to really like pay attention to that part of the body where you're feeling pain, give it attention, and then also bring attention to other parts of the body. Because in that seated meditation, you're doing constant body sweeps. So you're doing a lot of body scan just from head to toe and back up and also focusing on the breath. And it's a very concentrated approach. And Goinka is filmed. So you're watching him on video and he's walking you through the technique day by day until you kind of get into a rhythm. And then at the end of each day, you watch him give a Dharma talk. And you're just so grateful to listen to someone talk for an hour because you're j- you've just been with yourself in the silence. And what's amazing about his Dharma talks at the end of each day is he really speaks to what your experience was every single day. And you feel so seen. And so again, connected, like it's so personal what's happening to you in that silence. And at the same time, it's a set of phenomena that's probably happening to everyone else that's sitting in that meditation hall. So for me, that turned me on to more silent retreat. And I got to experience with different kinds of like insight meditation and doing more gentle seated practices. I did one other Goinka style Vipassana I believe one year later after my first retreat and going into it, I was so kind of egoic about it and not that I've overcome that at all, but I was like, I've got this, like, okay. I was giving myself notes before I showed up and just saying on day one, it's going to be like this. Here's what you're going to do. And just had a plan. And this second retreat toppled me over. I had never wanted to run away more from anything in my entire life. It was so painful in every way to be there. It was excruciating to be there. I made appointments with my teacher almost every day to ask her to help me find escapes. Like, just let me check my email. Just let me do that. Like I was begging and bargaining with this person to just get out of it. And finally on the eighth day, eighth out of 10 days, I was so exhausted. There were these storylines that were playing through my head every single day and they were different stories, but they all kind of had a similar theme and I could feel that. And so finally on the eighth day, I just felt like out of pure exhaustion, I surrender. And then I leaned into like, why have I been running so hard from this? I can't sleep. I'm having a hard time eating. I'm really not being here. I am not being present at all. And when I got quiet enough, I could finally hear what what was actually coming up for me is that I was facing abandonment issues. And I was so guarded and protected around that, that I had put up a really good fight to get out of just leaning into that. And so when I finally just accepted like, oh, you have abandonment issues, that's where this is coming from, I felt an immediate wave of tenderness sweep in and this awareness came to my mind where I just thought, okay, Rebecca, this is part of the human experience. Like we all have this issue and this has been the story from the beginning of time, right? It's, it's like coded into us. It's part of our evolution. And in that way, you are so connected and you are part of the human family and you deeply belong. So it was amazing how I got to surrender and got to experience awareness and compassion And Silent Retreat gave me that opportunity. Being in a place where I really wanted to run every single day also allowed me to understand and have compassion for what it's like to be in treatment, like to actually be in a residential treatment setting 
and how fucking hard it is to just be with yourself with no distraction, facing your addiction, facing your demons, and just being with it. So it gave me a whole level of respect for people who willingly or honestly, even unwillingly (laughs) do the treatment process. It's not easy. And I know it's different for everyone, but did the physical pain ever go away? Because I hate sitting. (laughs) And so to sit and meditate for that long, I, I mean, one day would drive me crazy. It's hard to answer that question. No. For me, no, it didn't go away. (laughs) I just got better at relating to it. Mm. And I just got more skilled at seeing what also was there. Gotcha. And is there, for some people, the things that come up when physically when they're sitting, is there a spiritual component ever to that? That kind of, you're aware of it, but is there deeper work after that to clear that? Um, Tell me a little bit more about what... You mean the pain? The pain. Is that what you're talking about? Like So like the, the physical pain that pops up and they say emotions and mm-hmm. traumas relate to certain parts of the body. So mm-hmm. if you're feeling these things come up while you're sitting, is there ways or techniques that they teach you to clear those things out? Or is that something that's separate from mm-hmm. the Vipassana retreat? So I think Vipassana really teaches you to be with everything and that when you really stay curious and continue to investigate and continue to watch without lingering too much. So that was the skill that I acquired with Vipassana meditation, specifically with Goenka's teachings, that I could sit and be with that pain. And I was also asked to give equal attention to the other parts of my body. So it really helped my mind not get too addicted to the pain, which is like, I learned I'm an emotion junkie. Like I am addicted to my feelings. I keep putting logs on that fire, whether it's the pain I'm carrying in my body or the stories I'm telling in my head, I'm feeding it. And so the technique of Vipassana is to really, you're watching those habits of the mind be drawn to different kinds of pain and you're training the mind to look at other parts of your reality too. Yeah. Silent retreat. Is that something that, I mean, you and I have spoken about it. I've done a short and I've mm-hmm. done like a short version of it. And I was, <laughs> there was almost a quality of an addiction of wanting to do more of that mm-hmm. for sure. But sure. I think that that has to do with just my need to clear more and the power of silence. Is that something that you bring into your work with, with people and families? Um, do you talk about the power of silence and Yeah, I do. Lately, I've been teaching parents a lot, like doing deeper dives into parenting work, which is so humbling because I am not a parent. And working with teenagers, I'm getting like, I've been working with teenagers for 15 years. The older I get, like the more mature I become, I realize in quotes that I'm an expert with parent coaching and in family life. The more mature I get and the deeper the bond I create with the teens that I'm working with, I realize this is such hard work. And so I'm really humbled (laughs) to get to teach parents and to even have them listen to anything I'd say is, is really like a gift. The piece that I do try to incorporate, and definitely this comes from silent retreat. It also comes from deeply observing family life because the work that I've done with my coaching service is that I actually go into the home and make home visits. And I 
often encounter just difficult scenes in family life. And especially when you're transitioning home from treatment, it's really tough. And one memory that I have of working with a family is this teenage girl recently came home and they had created this really solid home contract of the standards and commitments that she was asked to keep and that she willingly promised to keep before she came home from treatment. And then when she was home, like the reality started hitting her. And so I watched her petition her parents to kind of relent on a lot of the boundaries that they set up all for her well-being and her continued sobriety and recovery. And she started becoming so emotional and she was just like pleading her case. And I, as the witness was finding myself being like, just let her have what she wants, you know, (laughs) like she's such a cute kid and was just like having my own process. And I am like really anxious. And these are the things in family life that actually excite me to watch. Like these are small moments, but they're so profound. And I was like finding myself being gripped in this scene, wondering what her parents were going to do. And I was so amazed because they chose silence in that moment. And they chose an extended period of silence because she was really going for it. And what was amazing to watch as that scene unfolded is that their deep listening allowed her to start to witness herself because she could hear some of the addictive thinking and the distorted thinking and the entitlement and all these things that kind of go into our recovery and just our reckoning with our own humanness. And she wasn't distracted by her parents. So she could actually like pay attention to where she was coming from. And by the end of that kind of soapbox that she was on, she was able to say, I guess I'm just saying this is really hard for me and I'm really struggling. Wow. It was so cool. (laughs) And so that's a story I like to share with the other parents that I work with because I think it's so relatable and it's, it's about relationship, any kind of relationship, but specifically in family life with parents and children, it's such a, a powerful tool. So I do incorporate a lot of reflective listening exercises where I ask parents to just stay quiet, just listen. It's so easy as a parent to try to dominate the conversation. Like, I know better. I know this. I know this. And to really overpower the child in that sense. So that's really cool. It is. And I think these are all simple things that aren't always easy. And as a parent, what I can really honor is the, I think what you're speaking to, OJ, is the love that you feel for your child Mm -hmm. and wanting to protect them your own anxiety that you're probably feeling and wanting to take care of that and really not wanting to see your child in distress. All of it, when I uncover all of the reasons why, it's usually love that's driving these habit patterns. And at the same time, like that that step back allows your child to individuate and discover their own inner wisdom. Mm -hmm. And if they're saying anything really intense or scary, you can always come back to it or definitely intervene if it's really scary. (laughs) Um, But that listening is a really powerful underutilized tool. I found that to be so profound Mm. because observing families and observing just life, how much we're always constantly trying to fill it Mm-hmm. Fill it, fill it, fill it. Words, 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 words. And there's in the balance of yin and yang, you have to have the silence in order to have the words. So mm-hmm. I feel like it's something that we're coming to more and more, recognizing 
the power of the tool and that it's easy and free. Guess what? Silence takes, oh, actually nothing. Totally. Right. (laughs) Other than maybe Mm -hmm. self-control, which is hard in its own right. But Mm. yeah. And OJ, what you said about, you know, wanting to dominate, it's like, I think culturally and in many cultures across the world, like the elder has the final say. The elder is the person that gets heard and children's voice may not be heard. And I'm realizing the more that we repress hearing and listening or the other side of that coin is maybe the child's need to respect their own silence, right? Do you find Mm. that there's families that they drive at their child for an answer or for an explanation when really what the moment needs is like to honor that the child doesn't want to talk right now. The same way there's times when adults don't want to talk and mm-hmm. need to need to be silent. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially with adolescents, we're starting to really build the language around identifying our needs and wants. And so an important part of family life, particularly in this like the snapshot of family life that I'm the most familiar with, with adolescents, is to be able to respect that part of healthy relationship is not just being together, it's also being able to withdraw and giving each other permission to withdraw, knowing that we're we're gonna come back, right? And so it's how we talk about that, the language we use that creates safety around that. Like I need space or I'm feeling, I'm feeling escalated. I need a timeout. I know I'm like 50 years old, but I need a timeout, right? So it's just really modeling that in your parenting and also honoring it in the child. It's such a life skill and a marker of healthy relationship to be able to know yourself enough to have the silence and space enough to kind of identify a want and a need and then feel safe enough in relationship to reach out for it. And fast forwarding to like adulthood, there's so many people that I've worked with with throat chakra issues, myself included. And stemming from something that happened in your childhood where you couldn't speak and say what you actually felt. And it's caused issues later on in your life as adults. There's blocked energy going on. And so I think giving your child the freedom to then express themselves in a way that they feel safe is really important for them as they continue to go through life and as they continue to grow as adults, for them to learn where they have the power to speak and have the power to say what they're actually feeling rather than suppressing those things. Mm, Absolutely. Thanks, OJ. You're welcome. I'm a little bit curious, and you can choose to answer or not, but... um, So you're in some intense situations. Sometimes it gets pretty intense. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) she's grimacing (laughs) or grinning. Either one. It's like a sure. (laughs) Probably a quick back and forth. It's a grinace. Yeah, it is a grinace. (laughs) Um, I'm wondering, sort of, if if our lives are this if they're customized for us, right? Mm. And you have yourself in these sort of challenging Mm. positions, Mm -hmm. do you find yourself reflecting on the experience and like how and what is it doing sort of for you on your personal journey Mm -hmm. when you enter into these other 
environments? That's a really compassionate question to ask. And I think it's really important. I love what you're doing with this podcast where it's a collective of healers coming together. And I feel like as healers, we do need to ask ourselves, um, what am I doing? (laughs) How is this impacting me? And how do I take care of myself? I am the kind of healer or therapist where I am impacted by the work that I do. It matters to me. And I I deeply care about each one of my clients. And so as I'm not set apart in that at all, because I know that about myself, I have to do a lot of self-care. So, um, and then I'll kind of hit what you're saying in a deeper way, but the self-care piece is so important for me because as I've recovered more myself, I'm becoming more deeply aware of the impact on my body that I'm feeling traumas in my body. I'm feeling stories that are being shared with me in my body. I'm holding a lot and I'm sitting a lot, like I'm physically sitting a lot with my clients. So all of that kind of has an impact. I make sure to get my own body work done. I make sure to see my own therapist. I make sure to go to my own support groups. I make sure to write, to journal, to sage my home, to sage myself, like invite as much ritual as I can (laughs) to just tend to myself and continue to nurture myself and heal and not hold so much. So that's been really powerful. In terms of like deeper impact, Yes. Like it makes me wonder about past lives. It makes me wonder about, you know, the trajectory that I'm on and just this incarnation. How did I get into this incarnation? Where am I going after this one? What do I want for my next? I don't know if I have a choice in that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but what would I like for the next life? And it depends on the day as well. Like there are days where I just feel like I am absolutely in my calling. I never question that I'm in my calling, but there are days that it just really sinks up for me. And then there are also days where I'm like, (sighs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) just like, this is heavy. Mm -hmm. This is really heavy. And so I just allow space for that to be there and to rest and to feel it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine some of the stuff that comes up as body workers talking to our clients. We talk to our clients and sometimes we get into deeper things, but you're specifically creating a space where you're meant to get into those really deep, dark places Mm -hmm. to then bring things to light. So I can only imagine what that's like for you. Do you work specifically with people that are transitioning out of residencies? Do you ever work with families that are hesitant to go that route with their kids? Yeah, I do a lot of preventative care and it works. It's effective, even if it's only an assessment tool. So I've worked with many families where they're contemplating, but the preventative care will allow them to have more tools and to get more stable to make home life work. I've worked with families where It just mattered to everyone, to the parents and the child, that they were doing everything that they could before going that route. And having a professional working with them helped validate why they needed to go the treatment route. So in my mind, it's typically a success either way, just to kind of have that assurance or um, to acquire enough skill where you can make home life work. 
And as far as like the degree of healing, there's things that have happened like a long time ago that have some families may have kind of buried it deep mm -hmm. down in there. And it's been years and years and years. Would you say something like that would be beneficial for those families to really bring things to light and clear the space on that mm -hmm. type of thing? And do you mean like attending treatment, like going for an out-of-home placement or having more preventative work? More preventative work, but stuff mm -hmm. that's been like they think they're past it and that they might not, you mm -hmm. know, have really addressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think any kind of preventative work, whether it's having a coach come into your home or coming to a therapist's office, I see value in both. I see value in any kind of immersive experience. So if you're going to like a two-day family retreat or a two-day parenting workshop or whatever that looks like, to be in community with other people so that you don't feel so isolated as a family or an individual can really help. I didn't know they did like two-day workshops and retreats. Yeah, so, cool. so there are immersive experiences. And I also just want to say like gentle is powerful. So really even working with a therapist weekly, that over time can open up so much and really create a lot of awareness and a lot of like a deep, rich inner work. It just might take longer than like a treatment setting or a wilderness therapy setting or silent retreat. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And I like what you said about being preventative because it's very similar with uh, like body work and physical work and energy work. It's, it's preventative. Mm. And the way Western society looks at healing, they look at it as, what's the word I'm looking for? Reactive care, mm -hmm. right? Where it's like something's wrong, I got to fix it. But the same thing can go for, for therapy as well. It's like nothing has to be wrong. You can start to maintain things before things actually get to the point where, you know, shit hits the fan. Totally. Yeah. I, I think everyone would benefit from working with a therapist at some point, whether it's a verbal modality or sand tray therapy or play therapy or neurofeedback. There's so many different ways in that it's actually, it's exciting to get to explore and it feels almost like, or truly like spiritual adventure. Mm -hmm. It's just how we frame it to ourselves. Yeah. It is exciting to explore. And it can be just that. Mm -hmm. Like we're talking about, it can be preventative. It doesn't have to be reactive. You don't have to wait until somebody comes home with a major problem. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be, I think that there's a lot of stigma, even still, mm -hmm. around think, words like trauma, mm -hmm. for example. And I might, I mean, that could be a whole other hour-long mm -hmm. podcast. Um, but this idea of exploration and allowing it to be playful without needing to occupy shame, mm -hmm. without needing to invite shame into the experience. It's like you just mentioned a bunch of modalities and I was just asked to join a constellation workshop tomorrow night. Fun. Cool. And so do you work with constellation no, at all? No. Um, but are you familiar? Have you, have you done I've, some constellation I've heard about work? it. I guess we're going to get someone on the podcast soon to talk about it. I think that's a great <laughs> idea, OJ. Um, <laughs> it's a really fun sort of role-playing healing modality. Mm. And I, I did a little bit of it in New York with a, with a social worker, actually, mm. where it was a one-on-one. -on -one and you can use different figurines to represent different people in your lives. And mm. there's... 
a lot of power in something as simple as that. And then there's other workshops where it's live people playing different roles. But again, it takes on this really deeply spiritual component Mm -hmm. because despite the fact that I'm playing, you know, the sister of somebody or the daughter of somebody, I'm also having my own experience of the workshop. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it becomes like this meta spiritual thing. That sounds so cool. Ultimately, it's an act of exploration, Mm. but it, but it's very healing. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about wilderness therapy. Okay. Because that's obviously where I geek out because mm-hmm. I think that there's such deep healing in nature. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming back from Ghana after the first time and I was living in New Orleans and one of my roommates had a younger sister whose parents were not going to throw her like a $25,000 sweet 16 party and she was having all sorts of nightmarish reactions to that. And, you know, here I am coming back from a country where plenty of people don't have a dollar. Plenty of people have dollars, but lots of people don't. Like the the disparity of wealth is greater. And I thought how healing it would be if she could go and see the way other people live, right? When we like take the blinders off, when we augment our own perspective, there's so much healing there. So again, the power of exploration and doing so in nature, which is like out of our control in a way. Mm -hmm. And it's for so many of us, something that we don't connect to regularly and deeply, right? If our parents don't go on camping trips, then we don't really go on camping trips. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the benefits that you've found or what are some of the experiences that you can relay about some of your clients who've had these wilderness experiences or your own experience? I think that the benefits to wilderness therapy are she's smiling are so like great ear ear. and varied. I what I love the most about seeing kids come home from wilderness therapy is that they can do it, that they did it, and they there's such a sense of accomplishment and healthy pride that goes into that because you survived and you took care of yourself. These are kids who are just like us, like glued to their cell phone. I mean, I was on my cell phone texting right up until the moment we started recording this podcast, right? (laughs) Because I'm, you know, nursing that addiction. These are kids that are so used to like, is it quick, easy, and fun? I'm in, right? And so our brain starts to get wired to all those things. When you're brought out into the wilderness, it's so deeply connecting. It unplugs us from all this stuff that's so quick, easy, fun, and really connects us to the world around us. And I think for some kids, like helps them really take a look around for maybe the first time in their adolescence. I've worked with kids who learn how to bust coals. They learn how to make fire. They learn how to whittle their own bowls, make their own utensils out of wood. They like really did it. Then on top of that, they're carrying like 40 pound backpacks and hiking 10 to 20 miles a day, setting up their own camp, really taking care of themselves and their community. And it's really special. I would tell any parent who's thinking about doing something like that to work with an educational consultant who has toured these different programs so that you're really getting someone to help curate and vouch for an experience for your child. And I would also encourage any parent who's thinking about doing it to really just do their homework and find a program that's going to meet your child's needs. 
there's so many varied programs. There's programs that um, just offer children gardening all day long. So you're really connected to the earth in a different way that's like peaceful, organic. And then there's these more like rugged adventure camps that I'm talking about. There's camps that really focus on the autism spectrum. There's camps that focus on youngsters, like 12 year, you know, 12 to 14 year olds. So there's all these different kinds of programming that are available. And um, there's also young adult programming for wilderness therapy. And that's where it's really sweet because there's more of a willingness for that young adult to choose a wilderness therapy program. That's one thing that I feel like potentially could be tricky for a parent is knowing which program to choose Mm -hmm. in a way, because if it's something that's very foreign to their child and Mm -hmm. maybe the child is resistant, Mm -hmm. right? Do we, wouldn't we expect that maybe Mm -hmm. that if there's behavioral things going on in the first place, that sort of anything that the parent suggests could be met with resistance. Yes. So how do you take a child who's like addicted to TV and their cell phone and social media and the instantaneous gratification and quick food and quick everything? How might you choose something that would be good for them? That's a great question. And that's where I'm talking about something that's so niche, like wilderness therapy in and of itself is a very niche form of treatment. And then I'm saying within that field, look into educational consultants. Google educational consultants and Google educational consultants in your community because these are people who have really done the homework and can give you a well-educated idea. Like a concierge. Basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, it's a true boutique service. Very cool. How much of your spiritual side do you implement into your, mm-hmm. your therapy? Mm-hmm. Well, I always meet my clients where they're at. So... If it's a client where that's just, there's not space for that, I absolutely won't go there because I want to honor that and stay really client-centered. For my clients who are spiritually minded, I definitely incorporate that. And spirituality can also be kind of pragmatic too. So I was working with a teen last week who was experiencing high levels of anxiety and we put our legs up the wall and listened to music that he wanted to listen to and just chilled out. And his experience of it was, oh, that helped me in the moment. It didn't last afterwards, but it helped me in that moment. But that was great because that's a way that he can use the own medicine of his body (laughs) and different postures to help him regulate more. So I'll, I'll incorporate different yoga asana, just simple postures for my clients that are designed to work with anxiety or depression. My clients who are open for one-on-one tremoring yoga, I'll offer that as well. So that the body starts to tremor, we walk the body through a series of exercises that helps you learn how to fatigue the muscles in a way where when you finally lay down supine, your legs begin to tremor and release the traumas that have been stored in the body, particularly the psoas. So I'm not totally qualified and trained in that specific modality, which is TRE, but I incorporate some of those pieces and the different yoga trainings that I've had to walk a client through that. And I would walk a client through that who has a really difficult time verbally processing trauma. That's too overwhelming because in a sense you relive it when you tell the story again. And so I want to find gentle ways in. So I'll incorporate that. 
or we'll do walking meditation together, um, incorporate mindful modalities, some trauma-sensitive meditations, or just gentle kind of meditations that teach clients how to lean in to the pain and also take a step back out of it. Cool. Mm -hmm. You're going to say something? (laughs) Casey and I are just sitting here smiling at each other like a couple of goofs. <laughs> cheers. Cheers. I'll cheers your Topo Chico. Cool. <laughs> OJ's like, Topo Chico? What's that? No clue. Doesn't it come from, uh-huh. isn't it, in Mexico? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. OJ was just in Mexico. We're going to send you back cool. just to get some Topo Chico. Totally. I'm pretty sure they didn't have any Topo Chico. <laughs> <laughs> OJ just came back from this really cool thing called calligraphy yoga. Wow. And it's a blend of like Tai Chi and Qigong and yoga. Wow. And I could see that being a powerful healing tool. For sure. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That is awesome. Um, There are so many powerful Mm -hmm. tools. And it's, again, Mm -hmm. it's like the willingness to explore, right? Like the same way you pick up the, the remote control and choose a new TV show. <laughs> sure. Go out this mm-hmm. weekend and try a new mm-hmm. type of yoga mm-hmm. or try a Tai Chi or go to a Qigong or go to a park and, mm-hmm. right? I mean. Or lay down and do nothing. <laughs> yes. For sure. Turn your phone off. <laughs> yeah, the turn your phone off yeah. thing. Man, mm-hmm. I really want to, I want to have some of that for myself. Mm. I'm like, there's a nervousness and Mm -hmm. an anxiety. And I realized that it's just because I'm like, did I miss a thing? Did Mm -hmm. I, am I on top of it? Mm -hmm. I'm like, I need to turn the ringer off and leave it alone for like three hours. Mm -hmm. Right? Sure. It's three hours. Totally. Just give me a heads up. (laughs) (laughs) You see? (laughs) I'm not even his wife or his daughter. That's really funny. (laughs) Um, Well, just speaking to that a little bit for me, for myself, I found that recovery was fun. And I'm not saying that in any kind of way that's minimizing how painful it is because it is. And there's a part of it that sucks, you know, if I'm being real. And I found that this became a lifestyle for me. So I wasn't really going through a phase. It was like discovering a new way of being and a new way of doing life recovery gave me a different template to operate out of. I was operating out of a template that I was conditioned into, that I inherited. And so this was really nice for me to discover and get to try on different things. A lot of them stuck, you know, they, it felt nice. And so I've kept them in my life and it's just kind of like, um, hobbies and interests that have developed. I want to ask you, like, as we're shedding trauma, Mm -hmm. as we're clearing it, Mm -hmm. we get to maybe the end, right? Mm -hmm. And, And maybe this is something that has a stronger root in us or a thicker cord. Did you meet that in your own journey? Mm. where it was like, okay, I've done this work. I've done this work. I've done this work. This thing is still lingering. Mm -hmm. And it can feel really scary when it's, when it's like something that has been with you a long time or that has come through your family. And I'm kind of curious, like, how do you face the things that are scary? That's a big question. It is a little bit of a big, a little bit of a big, Mm -hmm. big question. Or like, 
Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm sure all of us could speak to that to yeah. some degree. I'd love to hear in terms of about your and OJ's the, experience the journey. with that. Well, I think it's something maybe that I'm still working with. And so I'm curious mm-hmm. about it. Like the last pieces, mm-hmm. right? The vestiges yeah. that are still there after we've worked and worked and mm-hmm. worked. It's like, how can we gain the confidence mm-hmm. to meet that mm-hmm. um, when it feels really scary, maybe? Yeah. For me, the word that comes to mind is constancy. So when I start to feel like I've strayed from my recovery, I can easily look at like, oh, it's because I've kind of walked away from the things that satisfy me. Like I walk away from the things that really buoy me up. So I might not be going, I might not be hitting up all my meetings or I might be, I might've taken a few weeks off therapy or not been in my yoga practice. So, I mean, there's just various ways that we kind of leave. For me, when I'm doing really well and when I'm able to face the hard stuff or the lingering pieces, and frankly, it's never going to stop. Like there's always going to be a lingering piece Mm -hmm. because I'm human and that's okay. Where I feel like I have the stamina and the resilience to deal with it is when I'm consistent with myself and I'm really being a constant to myself that doesn't mean I'm doing it alone. That's why I'm saying things like going to groups. They really help me. They really, really help me because I get to listen to other people. I remember that I'm not alone. I remember that this is what it's like to be human. This is what it's like to be in the divorce club. This is what it's like to grieve, to be in the grief club. This is what it's like to be in these different collectives that kind of help me out of my shell and into relationship. So It's either doing the things that put me in relationship with others that are facilitating my healing or complementing my healing or doing the things for myself, being in relationship with myself constant enough so that I'm relating to myself with friendliness. And I'm also forgiving of myself when I do walk away from some of my practices for a minute because it informs me. I I get to miss my practice that way. And then I get to want to come back to it. So that's been nice to finally get to take the shame out of my imperfection and not always being on top of everything, even my healing, without using it as an excuse to, to keep strain, but to just say, okay, well, now I miss it. So now I, need, now I need to go back to it and take care of it and befriend it. Again, the yin and the yang, right? The balance, mm. the being really high in one direction and then flipping right back down to the other direction and just keeping that interplay going. Absolutely. And they do inform the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just really, it's, it's just all information. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the letting go of shame, I think mm-hmm. is like the biggest component mm-hmm. to allowing what's the natural cycle of life. Mm-hmm. It's, natural it's mm. it it happens mm-hmm. everywhere mm-hmm. on the planet yep mm-hmm. to everyone yep so like you know we can stop the self flagellation a little bit but that's mm-hmm. some of the hardest stuff because we are you know we're not necessarily conditioned to have the yin right to Absolutely. have to have the rest we're conditioned to go and push and do Totally. I mean, we're perfectionistic even about recovery, even about healing. It's like, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to do this hard. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it's really hard to break away from that. I mean, I definitely have struggled with that over the years around like just, I mean, like spring break in it, like lifting up the shirt and just like, woo, like I'm going hard, <laughs> but I don't have to do recovery like that. Like it could be slow. I can take my time with it. Like I'm not going anywhere. So it's just trusting myself enough to just like, we can hang out. <laughs> yeah. The, I'm not going anywhere is, mm-hmm. is good. Yeah. Yeah. Be kind to yourself. It's yeah. a long journey. Yeah. Cool. How are we doing? Rebecca, is it, did we miss anything? What do you want us, what else can we talk about? I mean, I like your sweater. I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to compliment you, silly. Thanks. <laughs> Rebecca and I are taking ourselves out on a Mother's Day date mm-hmm. at some point mm-hmm. soon. Yeah, we're both proud aunts, but yes, I think we're we aunties. Can, so maybe we can do a, an, uh, the ant edition of okay. Mother's Day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're all, we're all children of mothers. It's true. And mothers, mothers, mother earth. Mm-hmm. So probably mothers in a past life sometime. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're old mothers. Probably maternal enough <laughs> anyway. <laughs> probably have done a lot of mothering mm-hmm. <laughs> as it is. <laughs> you think? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Miss Rebecca Tayebi, it's it's quite a pleasure. (laughs) Thanks. To sit down with you. Oh, yeah. In your living room. And you too, OJ. This This has been been great. Rebecca, if people want to connect with you beyond this podcast, what's the best way? You can find me on my website, satyafamilycoaching.com. S-A-T-Y-A. That mm-hmm. is Sanskrit for truth, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So, we Googled um, it right before we came be quiet. <laughs> you quit it. And that you'll find a little bit more about the services that I offer and my contact information is up there as well. Okay. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Sweet. Yay. Pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. All right. Peace out. Peace. Peace. Thanks, listeners. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to The Way of Healing. We hope that you find yourself inspired. If you enjoyed our show, a gift is to let others know. And we want to hear from you. Please share your feedback so we know how our work is resonating. Make us aware of modalities and practitioners whom we may not know. If you haven't already, please subscribe at thewayofhealingpodcast.com. Our email is thewayofhealingpodcast at gmail.com and find us at facebook.com forward slash thewayofhealing. Remember, a rising tide lifts all boats.